wedding rehearsal, time off, off season in the gym, cleaning your house, the extra special amount for the people who are coming to visit, going to the store to make sure you have all the ingredients, reading your lines for the play you're in 10, 12, 15 times, extra time in the library. What do all those things have in common? They're all about preparation. They're all about spending time getting ready for something that's important to us. I've come to the conclusion that if something is important to us, we'll prepare for it. If it's not important, we might prepare, we might not, we can take it or leave it. If you're a part of an athletic team and it's fun, but it's not really important, then probably practices get old pretty fast. If you're a part of a play or some type of production, and you're in it for the fun, but not really for, with your passion, rehearsals come and go. If you like to have good grades, but you, know, you can take it or leave it, then I suspect your study habits will be take it or leave it. Because you see that the success of of a performance isn't when you stand on stage and the curtain opens in front of the audience. It's all the weeks and weeks before when you were preparing. And the success in an athletic event is not when when you stand on the court or on the field or on the track to the cheering crowds, but it's all of the times that you went early to the gym, when you stayed late, when the early morning practices, late night practices, in the gym, on the track, on the field, where you continue to keep pushing and pushing and preparing. And getting good grades, the success of that isn't determined when you sit in a classroom, as some of you will do in the next few days, and open a blue book and begin writing. But the weeks you spent in the library, closing the library, opening the library, reading the material, reading it again, reading it again, in order to make sure you grasp it. In order to to do things right, in order to be successful about the things that are important to us, we prepare. And we do it all the time with all kinds of things. And if it's not important... We simply don't prepare. We don't take it seriously. There is no more more significant moment in history than the coming of Christ into the world. And when Christ comes into the world, God makes certain that people are prepared for his coming. And the culmination of that preparation is sending John the Baptist to be the messenger. In this passage from John the Apostle's Gospel, we read, There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all people might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. Now when I read that, part of me feels like talking about John in the midst of this hymn about Jesus seems out of place. This, is, this should be all about Jesus. Why interject John? I suspect it might be because there are still people, even John writes this gospel near the end of the first century, there are still people who are more enamored with John the Baptist than they are with Jesus. 
And so the author John wants to set the record straight. As awesome as John the Baptist is, as necessary and important and and significant as he is to the coming of Christ, he is a witness to the light. He's not the light. And in our culture of celebrity worship, even in the church, it's a good reminder for us that as important as the people are who help us understand the scriptures and understand how to follow God and are significantly important in our spiritual walk, they are witnesses to the light, not the light. And sometimes we can become so enamored with those witnesses that we make them the light. We forget it's all about Jesus. But I suspect the larger reason for, for John being included here is that for people who have had the Old Testament prophecies read to them over and over and over again, to people who have heard God's message of preparation through the centuries, just in case they miss it, here comes John to help them get it. And John comes as the messenger of preparation to the people of Israel to the people of the world, for the coming of the Messiah. You see, the people who, who ignore Jesus are the people who ignore John. The people who are cold-hearted toward Jesus are the people who are hard-hearted toward John. And the people who embrace Jesus are the people who embrace John. In Luke chapter 20, there's this story of the scribes and the chief teachers of the law. They come to Jesus and they say, Who gives you the authority to do all of this? And Jesus says, I'll answer your question if you answer mine. Jesus has a lot more of a sense of humor than I think we realize. And he says, John's baptism, was it from heaven or was it just something human? And these guys get together in a little huddle and discuss this question. And they say, you know, if we say it's from heaven, then Jesus is going to say, why didn't you believe him? And if we say, well, it was just from earth, then the people are going to riot and stone us because they believe John was from heaven. So they take, the, they take the cowards way out and just say, we don't know. And Jesus says, fine, you don't answer my question, I won't answer yours. And he walks away. But you see the connection. These people who, who reject Jesus are the people who reject John. And the people who embrace Jesus are the people who embrace John. And when you and I think about the coming of Christ into our lives, not just the first time, but over and over again, as he keeps moving us to deeper and deeper spirituality, spiritual walk with him, in depth of relationship with him, it comes back to preparing our hearts, being open and sensitive to the things of God, to have the mindset of God, the attitude of God, so that we can hear and respond and receive. And when you look at John's message, all of the gospel writers in one way or another sum it up in John's proclamation, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. In Luke chapter 1, we have the story of of John the Baptist, uh, his father, being in the temple. He's a godly priest and he's come to, to minister in the temple. And while he's there, all alone, an angel appears to him and says, Zachariah, I know that you and your wife haven't been able to bear children. We're going to do something about that. And you guys are going to have a child, and he is going to be a special child. He is going to be the forerunner, the one who prepares people for the Messiah. 
And in the midst of that conversation, the angel says, here's what he's going to do. And verse 16 of Luke 1 says, the angel says, many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God. He will turn them around. He will soften their hearts. He will prepare them. He will get them ready to hear and to understand and to accept and to receive Christ. That will be his role. But what will that look like? How will they know if, if the people are responding to John positively? What will, look, what will their lives look like? What kinds of things might happen in them if, they, if they are truly, their hearts are truly turned back to the Lord their God? I suspect there are many things. But it interests me that the angel says following this, that John will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. And all this will be done to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. I think the second thing that the angel says is a little more understandable to us. The disobedient being turned to the wisdom of the righteous. I think in that, in that phrase, there is something of salvation. The people who have rebelled against God, they turn back to God. But I don't think it's limited to that. I think it's people who have a sensitivity and awareness, a willingness to let people speak into their lives the truth of God. Now, through the years, I've had people who have spoken God's truth to me. And sometimes they've done that gently in a spirit of, I would say, uh, kindness. And other times people have spoken God's truth to me and in a different way. And my natural reaction is to get defensive and, and to begin to think, I don't need to hear this. I think that's pretty common. But in the times when I have sifted through what's truth and what's not... And when I have sort of set aside perhaps the, the, the means by which it was communicated to me, I can clearly see that my willingness and my openness to hear what they have to say about something in my life that needs to be changed, I see a direct correlation between a sensitivity to that and my sensitivity to God about other things. When my heart is closed off to things that people speak into my life about things where I need to grow and improve, when I'm sensitive to that and I'm open to that, I know uh, it's a sign that I am much more open to God about other things that he says into my, in, to me as well. And I know when I'm closed off to those things, when I'm defiant about them, I can tell you it is a sign that I'm closing off my heart to some of the things God wants to say to me as well about deeper things. In Luke chapter 3, the, um, John the Baptist is preaching. And, and John is one of these preachers who is in your face. You know, you read John the Baptist, he says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to come? About this day, who warned you to, to respond to this? And Mike talked about this some last Sunday night. But he, he has this message, and, and while he's speaking, 
to the, to the people. The religious leaders are off to the side, ignoring him, opposed to him, rejecting him. But as John speaks, even those harsh words, the crowd, the common people turn to him and say, what should we do? What do we do about it? How do we repent? And John says, if you have two coats, give one away to someone who doesn't have a coat. And then the tax collectors come to John and say, what should we do? And he says, stop cheating people on their taxes. And the soldiers come to John and they say, what should we do? And he says, stop using your power for personal gain. And you have this this group of people who respond positively to John's words of truth. And these are the same groups of people that you find later in the Gospels surrounding Jesus, hanging on every word that Jesus speaks with hearts open to him. And the same people who are over here ignoring John, rejecting John, are the same people who eventually put Jesus on the cross. There is this correlation in our lives between being open to the ways in which God speaks into our lives through other people that prepares us for the deeper things that God wants to keep doing in us. But the angel also says to to Zechariah, not only will the disobedient hearts be turned to the words of the righteous, but the hearts of fathers will be turned to their children. I have been pondering that for a few weeks, trying to figure out exactly what that means. And I'm not sure I've gotten there, but it's a, it's a, a prophecy that's, that's spoken in Malachi, as we read earlier. The difference is Malachi talks about both ways. Malachi says the hearts of the fathers will be turned to their children, and the hearts of children will be turned to their fathers. And some of the translations of Luke's gospel word it that way. Things like uh, parents and children will reconcile. And, and fathers will, and children will, will have a, a better relationship. And so that it's both ways. And that may well be what is meant. But it, it's intriguing to me that the angel doesn't say that. The angel just says the hearts of fathers will be turned to their children. And I think there's something of significance in that. In ancient times, and actually through the centuries, and honestly even to now, the power in society and culture resides with fathers. I put together this little chart. It's a little bit simplistic, but I think it makes the point that males have power. Females are looked at as vulnerable and weak. And parents have power and children are vulnerable and weak. And so the people in society and culture who have the the center of power are fathers. And the people who have little or no power are female children. And you see this throughout cultures. Fathers with power over their children. In, In ancient Rome, fathers could virtually do whatever they wanted to their children. And even today, children are the most vulnerable in all of society. They, they have little resources to defend themselves, to, to stand up for themselves. They, they don't have physical power, emotional power, 
And fathers tend to have most of it. But even if you talk, expand that among parents. Parents have power and children don't. And in the economy of the kingdom, the angel is telling us, people whose hearts are prepared for the work of God, the work that God wants to do in them, have a different perspective toward children than what society and culture tends to have. Instead of parents seeing children sometimes as a nuisance, something we tolerate, something we put up with, something that might be useful to us, we just simply see children as valuable, as important, as significant. That's certainly how we, that's certainly the picture we have of Jesus with children. In Mark chapter 9, there is a story of Jesus teaching and he takes a child and, and puts the child among them. And I have this image of the child sitting in Jesus' lap. And he says, whoever wants to follow me has to become like a little child. This is what the kingdom looks like. And what you do to these children, you do to me. And what you do with me, you're doing to the Father. And so if you want to have a right relationship with God, then it's important that you have a right relationship with Christ. And if you want to have a right relationship with Christ, you have a right relationship with children. I'm not sure we always see it that way. A chapter later, Jesus is, is teaching and people are bringing little children to, to Jesus to have him bless them. And the disciples shoo them away, rebuke them. And Jesus gets angry. He rebukes the disciples. That same thing that he does when when he, that he does to the wind and the waves when the storms are threatening their boat on the sea. He rebukes them and he says, stop it. Children are what the kingdom's about. You can't enter the kingdom if you don't come like a little child. And he took the children in his arms, put his hands on them, and blessed them, Mark says. Children are valuable to Jesus. They are not second-class citizens in the kingdom. They are precious to Jesus. But it didn't start with Jesus. God has always had that mindset about children. In some of the ancient cultures, they would actually sacrifice children to their gods. And a number of times in the laws, in the Pentateuch, God says to Israel, don't you dare think about doing that. It is heinous to me. But beyond that, God says to the people, particularly to fathers, you're responsible for your spirit, your children's spiritual well-being. You need to teach them and train them and you work with them and you help them to know me. Because the reality is godly parents tend to have godly children. And ungodly parents tend to have ungodly children. And how you develop and nurture the faith of children is a huge part of your responsibility as parents. Don't take it lightly. And fathers' hearts that are turned to their children is an attitude. It's a perspective about the value of children. I was thinking about that this weekend, the reading and hearing the events in Connecticut unfold. And as I said earlier... 
It's one of those things that it's, it's first impossible to get our minds around why this would happen. And we grieve for these families. But the one thing we do know, this is an act of the evil one through a human being. Because the evil one hates God. And the evil one hates what is precious to God. And the evil one's goal is to destroy what is precious to God. And I'm convinced that's why through the ages, children have been the brunt of so much pain. Because the evil one knows if you can cause trauma in the life of a child, it will often affect them for the rest of their life. And actually, some of you are probably walking witnesses of that. It's because children are so precious to God. But it's not just about mistreating children. It is this mindset of valuing children. Of of raising children to a new level. Of seeing them as God sees them. Because we tend to treat children less positively than God does. And it's not just about parents. It's about the church too. Some of you may not have children or you may not have children at home. But we all have a responsibility for our children. That's why every time we dedicate a child to God, congregation stands and we affirm our commitment to this child and to this family. And we want them to know that we take that seriously. Because the image that children get of God and the church is shaped by people in the church. Children aren't saying, I have negative views of the church because somebody, who, because somebody who has nothing to do with the church treated them poorly. It's about how the church treats them. It's about how we are invested in their lives. And we are all probably, we can all probably think of times when people in the church treated us positively and, and it, it enhanced our feeling of the church and negatively And it hurt our feelings about the church and about God. I remember back, I was, I don't know, sixth grade. You know, I wasn't wasn't an angelic child, but, you know, I wasn't terrible. Um, My mother would tell you I was angelic, but that's a whole other thing. But we, some friends and I were in the basement of church, maybe, it was either, I don't know, Sunday morning, Sunday night. It was after church. It could have been on any night of the week, to be honest with you. My dad was the pastor, so we were there most of the time. It seemed like, at least as a child... And we were downstairs running around in the basement of the church, not unlike the basement of this church, probably playing tag, hide-and-seek, something, and having fun. And the gentleman who was the Sunday school superintendent saw us, and he laid into us. And then he went and told my dad to make sure my dad knew that I was running in the church. Now, I have to give my dad a ton of credit because he handled that brilliantly. He, he said, I'll take care of it. He didn't scold me. He, he just talked to me about it. And, you know, I, I have such positive feelings about how my dad handled that situation. Not so much about the Sunday school superintendent, but about my dad, yes. And that has been how many years ago? You know, how many years ago? And what intrigues me, though, is about a few months later, it was time for the elections. And in those days, we elected the Sunday school superintendent. And he had been Sunday school superintendent for probably 15 or 20 years. And that year he wasn't reelected. 
And from the night of that election to, his, to the day he died, he never set foot inside of a church again. Turned his back on God completely. And the tragedy of that is that it seems to me that something about his, the way he treated children was simply revealing what was going on inside of his heart that we didn't see. And if we want to prepare for God to work in us, wouldn't it make sense that we would have a deep level of sensitivity and compassion and openness and love toward the most vulnerable people among us? Marva Dawn, in one of her books, says, the agenda of the church should be set by the weakest among us. The agenda of the church should be set by the weakest among us. Now, I'm still wrestling with that idea, and there's probably some tension to go with it, but I think there's something in that. Because we, as the, because the church tends to mirror society and culture, unfortunately, and we tend to get wrapped up in the idea that it's all about bigger, faster, more impressive, more strength. And when, you, when that's the goal... People who don't help us move toward that end get pushed aside and left behind. And that's going to be children. A lot of times, uh, you know, our perspective as a church as a whole, not just our church, because I think actually we do this pretty well, but actually the church universal has a tendency to say, we need to find people to work with adults and whoever is left will relegate them to the children. But Scripture tells us we ought to be thinking the exact opposite. We ought to be putting our best efforts, our highest levels of preparation into children, into the most vulnerable, the most impressionable, who we can help understand who God is and what God has done. When I think about the times when God has done a significant work in my life, when he's taking me, taken me to a deeper level of relationship with him, most of the time, it's not in uncommon moments. It's, it's not in moments that I would say were sort of miraculous or fantastic, but in common, ordinary life. When my heart was just doing what I'm supposed to do. When my attitude was turned toward the attitude that God wants about things that I might consider insignificant. But in those moments, God sneaks up on me and does something amazing. And I suspect that's true of most of us. We tend to think, and even when we look at this prophecy, we might think that the angel would say to Zechariah, he will, John will come and, and he, will, he will cause people to proclaim the Lord is God. He, he, will, he will tell them and help them to do amazing miracles. But not thinking more positively, engaging more effectively, humbling ourselves more toward children. And being open to, 
to the words, words of wisdom that we need in our lives. And yet that's what the angel says. And I'm not saying that's everything. I'm just saying to us that sensitivity to the most vulnerable is a kingdom principle. It's not a coincidence that God is born in a manger as a baby, helpless, insignificant, common. As we move into this Advent season, in this time of waiting, this time of seeking God and preparing our hearts for the coming of Christ once again, how would we judge our sensitivity to the word of truth that people may speak to us? How would we judge our sensitivity our openness to the least and most vulnerable and what we might think of as most insignificant among us. I wonder if, if maybe, maybe, maybe we, we will sense God's spirit working in our lives as much by, by taking time to play games or read with our children as by listening to another program on Christian radio or by involving ourselves in teaching or helping in a class of children as much as by engaging ourselves in another class that's geared to us. Or by listening to our youth, spending time with them, caring for them, loving them, as by reading another article in a Christian periodical. It's not as though we don't need to nurture our lives. We do. It's important. It's significant. But what's the proportion? What's our willingness? our sensitivity, our openness to give of ourselves so that God in Christ can speak into our lives once again. Holy Father, we thank you for your grace to us, for preparing us Forgive us for the times when we become so self-absorbed that we miss it. Open our eyes and our hearts to those subtle ways and yet vitally important ways in which you desire to prepare the soil of our hearts for Christ to come once again. We pray this through Christ. Amen.